Welcome to Club Core, an interdisciplinary podcast exploring science stories. I'm your host, Dr. Angel Core, an assistant professor of neuroscience at UNC Asheville. Each episode of this podcast is created by undergraduate students enrolled in one of my courses. So join us as we delve into a variety of topics with one simple goal, to get it less wrong. Hello, this is my podcast titled A Clockwork Orange, A Violent Masterpiece. Good afternoon, my name is Emily Clark and I'm an environmental studies major at UNC Asheville. I'm going to be your host today on a journey through the cinematic masterpiece, a well-known classic, A Clockwork Orange, which is one of my favorite movies. In the film A Clockwork Orange, the character of Alex is used to illustrate Sigmund Freud's theory of psychoanalytic and psychosexual stages in order to debate the question, is morality of man inherently violent? I'll make my case today in support of this reading by focusing on the sound as well as the setting for this film. Before I go any further, I would like to issue a trigger warning for sexual violence, physical violence, and suicide. If these are triggering to you, I would suggest not continuing. Okay, so based on a novel written by Anthony Burgess, A Clockwork Orange is critically acclaimed for its unconventional mixture of drugs, music, fashion, and violence. In 1972, Stanley Kubrick brought Burgess's iconic story to the big screen. Kubrick himself is also acclaimed for his morbid and unique cinematography. Stanley Kubrick has done things like The Shining, Lolita, Full Metal Jacket, and A Space Odyssey all equally alike um, for their meticulous set design and evocative use of music, which are all also vividly displayed in Kubrick's depiction of A Clockwork Orange. For those who are unfamiliar with the movie, I'll just give you a little plot summary. A Clockwork Orange is a crime film set in the dystopian version of Britain in the 1970s. The film follows the protagonist and narrator, Alex, played by Malcolm McDowell. Alex is an antisocial, smart, and disturbed teen whose bizarre interests include classical music, theft, murder, and committing rape with his gang of friends, which he refers to as his droogs. The first part of the movie is dedicated to Alex and his droogs committing crimes all over London. Crimes like rape, theft, murder are all equally shown in the movie, but these activities are put to an end when he is ultimately sabotaged by his droogs and sent to prison. So in prison is really where the movie kind of starts like getting climactic. In prison, Alex turns his life to the Lord, surprisingly, and decides that he ultimately wants to change. He is recommended by the priest of the church for a treatment called the Levitico Technique, which is an experimental technique meant to rehabilitate criminals. The treatment consists of a nausea-inducing injection while being forced to sit through hours of violent films, some of which are accompanied by the music of his favorite composer, Ludwig von Beethoven. So because of this injection that he is giving, he becomes extremely nauseated, like violently sick, by these films as well as the music playing. Proving the treatment successful, he cannot witness or experience violent sex or Beethoven without becoming extremely ill. So the treatment is successful. Um, The treatment pretty much works in the way that he just can't experience violence without becoming incredibly ill. He's released under the belief that he is cured from being violent. After his release, Alex roams the streets and is inevitably recognized by one of his old victims that he brutally raped. His old victims attempts to fight him, but the police come and break up the fight. 
But in a shocking turn of events, the policemen are his droogs. His droogs were the one who sent him to jail in the first place. The droogs, disguised as policemen, kidnap him and take him to the countryside where they brutally beat him and attempt to drown him in attempts of killing him. Alex barely escapes to someone's house before passing out. He wakes up in a home of a man named Alexander, who, surprisingly, is another one of Alex's past victims. Alex had brutally raped and beat Alexander's wife to death while making Alexander watch. So, Alex was wearing a mask during these acts of violence, so Alexander does not originally recognize Alex, but he does know of Alex from reading about the Levitico technique in the newspapers. Fast forward to the present moment in the film, Alexander remembers what Alex did to his wife and tortures him so intensely that Alex turns to suicide by jumping out of a window. So if you remember from the Levitico treatment, Alex cannot hear music from Beethoven without feeling violently ill. And so Alexander tortures Alex by playing Beethoven and it makes him so violently ill, he attempts to jump out a window in attempts of suicide. After Alex's self-induced brush with death, his attempt proves to be unsuccessful when he wakes up in the hospital with only broken bones. Being given a series of psychological tests in the hospital, he discovers that he no longer has aversions to violence or sex, or Beethoven. The minister, who first recommended him for the treatment, arrives and apologizes to Alex. He offers to take care of Alex and get him a job in return for his cooperation. As a sign of goodwill, the minister brings in a stereo system playing Beethoven's Ninth. This prompts Alex to contemplate violence and begins to have vivid thoughts of having sex with a woman in front of an approving crowd. He thinks to himself, I was cured alright. I know that was a lot to take in. Now that we've recapped the film, let's rewind for a second and focus on some specific details and how the movie relates to Freud and morality. Starting off with the very beginning of the movie, the first scene is our witness of Alex and the Drugs committing rape. This illustrates Freud's theory of psychoanalytic and psychosexual stages as well as the morality of man. Throughout the entirety of the film, as well as this particular scene, we see a lot of different ideologies on what morality is. Alex first knocks on the door and exclaims, Please let me in! There's been a terrible accident! My friend's in the road bleeding to death! Can I use your telephone to call an ambulance? The wife is very reluctant and is very unsure about letting a random man in, but her husband, Alexander, who you remember from torturing him, says, well, I suppose you better let him in. Here you can really see the duality of man. Alex is manipulative, trying to take advantage of the couple so he can commit violence, while the couple wants to help a guy who's seemingly in trouble. This highlights that an individual's freedom of choice and free will is crucial in order to preserve humanity, both as an individual and as a member of common and collective society. Following this line of thinking, we are led to explore the famous question, are we inherently good or evil? So, on the one hand, it can be argued that people are inherently good. Humans as a species are naturally empathetic and instinctually crave companionship. Our ability to love is wholesome and biological. In juxtaposition, it can be argued that humans are inherently bad. This side of the argument is clearly displayed in many religions. In Theravada Buddhism, it is actually taught that if a person is bad in their past life, in their next life, they will also be bad. Christian religion also argues that we all have sin nature and that's why Jesus died for the world. There are a lot of complex sentiments on what the true nature of human is. No matter what your beliefs are, it is clear that there are both good and bad people in the world. Much like the entirety of humankind, 
Alex's, or any person's, true nature comes from within, while their outer persona is governed by their settings. The choice between good and evil is a decision we make repeatedly throughout our lives as human beings. In Stanley Kubrick's interpretation of A Clockwork Orange, he shows us no concise reason for Alex to be the way he is, and infers that Alex is just a bad person. As a way to consistently reinforce this narrative about Alex, Kubrick backs up his points throughout the film by using music. To Alex, the delight he finds in classical music is closely related to the ecstasy he feels during his acts of ferocious violence, which he refers to as ultraviolence. In the same scene of breaking an entry is when you experience the first film form, music. Through the most violent scenes in A Clockwork Orange, Kubrick adds dainty playful renaissance music, including Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. That contrasts the violence that Alex is committing. Alex raping the woman and making her husband watch represents the release of repressed sexually violent urges stemming from deep within a corrupted human nature. This is acutely contrasted by the music that plays while the scene is occurring. The distorted version of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony fits right into that notion of disorder and the rotten nature of humanity, or more specifically, Alex. Alex's warped sense of sexuality is an overarching motif connected to Freud's theory of the stages of psychosexuality. To briefly explain the stages, Freud's theory of psychosexuality is broken down into five stages, which he calls the psychosexual stages. He proposed that psychological development in childhood takes place during these five psychosexual stages. The first stage is oral, which is described as children derive pleasure from oral activities, including sucking and tasting. They like to put things in their mouths. The second stage is the anal stage. Children begin potty training. The third stage is called the phallic stage, which boys are more attracted to their mother, while girls are more attracted to their father. The Latin C stage is children spend more time and interact mostly with same-sex peers. The genital stage is individuals are attracted to the opposite sex. These are called the psychosexual stages because each stage represents the fixation of libido on a different area of the body, and the libido is the roughly translated as like sexual drives or instincts. As a person grows physically, certain areas of their body become important sources of potential frustration, which are labeled as erogenous zones, pleasure, or both. We see Alex in the last stage, the genital stage. The genital stage is described as the growing adolescence that shakes off old dependencies while learning to deal maturely with the opposite sex. Alex commits rape so many times that it becomes a hobby or even a second nature to him. It has so completely consumed his whole life that it is all he's ever interested in. This intense fixation with rape mirrors that intense fixation that children often embody when they discover a hobby or entity that they find fascination in. Because of this, it is easy to think of Alex like a kid. He has this childlike mischievousness about him and the violence is used like a new toy. He has this naive idea of freedom where he thinks he can do whatever he wants and get away with it, probably because he has for so long. It is interesting to mention the psychosexual ideas because Freud's theory has no mention of sex being violent. Freud just sees sex as a part of life that comes naturally throughout a person's adolescence. This relates back to the idea that Alex is inherently violent because it shows that violence is just another part of life to Alex, just like how sex is an essential part to life to Freud. This message of psychosexuality is implemented throughout the movie further than the plot. In every setting in the movie, there is phallic imagery. Following this theme, is an example is Alex's room. In his room, he has this large mural of a woman, to put it lightly, expressing her own sexuality, or like sexual urges. And there's even a scene where two female preteens are provocatively licking a lollipop while Alex attempts to hit on them. 
And then he ends up actually hooking up with them. It's really disturbing. And in the very beginning of the movie, the camera pans in and surrounded all around him are naked mannequins. The whole movie is just full of these, I guess, like sexual ideas. One of the most important scenes where we see this phallic imagery is um, in one of his victim's house. The victim, her whole entire house is covered in tiny fallacies, I guess you could say. And she also has a giant phallic statue right in the center of her house. In this scene, Alex and his droogs attempt to break into a nameless teacher's house. Alex knocks on her door with the same script. Please let me in. There's been a terrible accident. My friend's in the road bleeding to death. Can I use your telephone to call an ambulance? The teacher replies no because she has seen the news and has heard to watch out for this exact scenario. She locks all of her doors and rings the police. Alex and his droogs realize she knows, but do not give up. Alex and his droogs realize she has an unlocked window and Alex alone decides to break in. He breaks in and comes up behind her and attempts to grab her, but she does not go down easily. They fight for a while and Alex, not knowing what else to do, finds this giant statue and rams it into her head, causing her to die on the spot. He hears the approaching sirens and runs out of the building. Little does Alex know, this whole thing was a setup. His droogs immediately knock him out by shattering a milk glass on his head and leave him to be caught by the police. It's pretty easy to spot the meaning behind the metaphor, sex and violence, when Alex uses a giant phallic statue to kill her. This scene kind of flips what we think about Freud's theory and what it would look like in a dystopian society. Sex is still natural, but so is violence, leading us to believe they go hand in hand, which would explain Alex's disturbing habits. So, as you remember from the plot summary, Alex undergoes a psychotherapy called Levitico treatment. Psychoanalytic therapy is a form of in-depth therapy that aims to bring deeply buried thoughts and feelings to the conscious mind so that repressed experiences and emotions, which are often from childhood, can be brought to the surface and examined. Not to our surprise, this is another Freudian theory that Kubrick bases his ideas on. Although both the therapy and the theory have advanced since Freud's day, some of Freud's basic ideas continue to shape our thinking about human behavior and functioning. One fundamental Freudian concept is the powerful effect of the unconscious part of the mind on our feelings, actions, relationships, and endeavors. Unconscious conflicts can cause anxiety, moodiness, depressive thoughts, troubling personality traits, or difficulty in finding and maintaining long-term relationships. Many such problems have their roots in past experiences. This alone would explain a lot of Alex's behaviors and would explain why Alex is so fixated on violence and corruption. Maybe he has no moral subconscious. He isn't aware of what he's doing is wrong. Through psychoanalytic theory, that is plausible. It is interesting to ponder the idea that Alex, through government-issued therapy, though it was more of a torture conditioning, could have been good. Alex is a complex person, and from the movie, you can never really tell if he actually wants to get better, or if he is just using it as a ploy to get out of prison. Stanley Kubrick leaves us to contemplate these complexities. Overall, A Clockwork Orange is a disturbing cult classic that emphasizes the true corruption of mankind. Demonstrated through sound, setting, and Freudian theory, Stanley Kubrick gives us much to think about when we question human nature. Through the character of Alex and many corrupt themes such as conditioning, violence, and punishment, we come to the conclusion that he exists solely as an evil human being, leading us to believe that humankind is inherently evil. 
Once again, my name is Emily Clark, and thank you for listening to my analysis of Stanley Kubrick's 1970s film, A Clock Orange. Special thanks to Professor Carr and Matthew Dipple for the helpful edits. Club Court is produced by a multidisciplinary team of students at UNC Asheville, with sound engineering support by undergraduate Kat Sawyer. Jessica Fox, a UNCA graduate, wrote our theme music. Special thanks to the UNCA Video Production and Media Design Lab for their help with this project, and thank you for listening. You can find show notes, including episode credits and links to the research discussed in this episode at clubcore.com episodes. If you like this episode, please share, subscribe, and review. And if you have a question you'd like us to explore, drop us a line. You can find me, Angel Core, on all the socials at Club Core. We'd love to tell your science stories so we can all get it less wrong. Until next time!